What if that device you're wearing on your wrist was the key to more effective healthcare? And no, I'm not simply talking about tracking your steps. We're talking about precision health. And today you're going to hear from one of the globe's top experts in this area, Stanford's Dr. Michael Snyder. Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health Wellness and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. And like many of you, I'm intrigued about the potential of these little computers we wear on our wrist. From Fitbits to Garmin's and everything in between, the opportunities, as we'll learn today, are truly endless. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Snyder, Chairman of the Genetics Department at Stanford Medicine. He is the world's leading expert in precision health research, and you're going to understand why after you hear him. Additionally, as an entrepreneur, Dr. Snyder's co-founded companies have collectively raised $242 million in venture capital and are worth more than $6 billion in value. As always, if you have any questions about your current or future career as a health and wellness coach, please pop over to CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or feel free to reach out to us anytime. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. We'll set up some time to talk. Now it's time for Stanford's Dr. Michael Snyder on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dr. Snyder, thanks for joining us today. This is a privilege. It's on short notice. Thanks for jumping on. Great to be here. So right out of the gate, let's jump in the deep end. How did you originally become drawn to precision health research? This is a big deal. You're on the cutting edge here. Uh, give us the scoop on this. Yeah, well, it stems from the research we do in general. We People used to study like genes and problems one component at a time. So our stick when I started my research career quite a while ago was really to look at everything at once. So rather than a little bit here, so and a little bit there, we would try and see the whole picture, basically. And, and so we, we did it initially for solving biological problems, like how do cells know where to grow and things like that. Yeah. When I moved to Stanford about a dozen years ago, we really decided we needed to do this for medicine. What really hit me was when the first time I, I, I arrived here, I went in new health plan like you normally do when you right. get a new job. And of course. We pulled blood and they gave me these 12 measurements. Here we are in a modern world, and they're giving us, you know, a very small number of measurements, most of which are worthless. Right. Uh, we should really be doing this entirely different, and that's what that's what triggered this. Wow. So, so had it been something that was intriguing to you most of your life, you know, through your running or some of those kinds of things, and then you got drawn into it even more so a dozen years ago when you went through that process? Yeah, I think it was just that we're we're just big on on solving problems with big data basically sure. and i think sure. that's really what drew me to it that we were just medicine was broken in so many different ways and and that is our big stick it, it the more i thought about the more i thought we need to transform the whole thing we we're very focused on uh treating people when they're ill uh you know we're very reactive everything every decision about your health will be based on population-based measurements uh and it's not based on individuals and right. if anyone should know that it's actually probably the people you're talking to because right. they they perform at an individual level and and you know especially when you're trying to reach your peak performance you have to tighter it just right you can't overdo it or you'll get injured. And if you underdo it, you'll underperform. So I think it's true for just people in general. We really need to optimize our health on an individual basis. And it's obvious from everything you do, from your, you know, your right. sleep, from how you train, how you exercise. Uh, we're, we're all individuals and we need to treat people that way. So that's our general philosophy. So you said healthcare was broken. And I, I, I'm going to say, 
I think it still is. So it are, is, are these it is options so that people yeah. can, I, I, are these things that people can say, Hey, I heard this interview. I want this done with my blood testing or, or are these things people can request now, or is this just in the research process and it's really not available at this point? A small amount of it can now get out. The wearables, we'll probably talk about that. Yes, I think definitely. everybody can uh, access. And I think that's going to be an important part of people's health. But the other things we're doing, so our stick now is that we actually, we sample people, if you will, while they're healthy. We we draw their blood and urine and actually their poop for their microbiome. Mm-hmm, we'll mm-hmm. take as many measurements as possible while they're healthy. We sample them every three months uh, in our research project. And, and we'll, again, make as many molecular measurements off their blood, off their urine, and, and look at what's called their microbiome. That's what's in your gut. Yes. And it's very important for your health. Uh, your food very much uh, dictates what's in your microbiome and vice versa. Yeah. And it, it, you know, your, it digests your food, makes essential vitamins, all that sort of stuff. So, so we think measuring all these things can be very powerful for, for us understanding better how we work at an individual level. What does it mean to be healthy? How does that change over time? Are some of the big questions we're getting at. But more importantly, trying to use these technologies too to be able to see can they be used to manage people's health better? And actually, just from the group we've been profiling, it's 109 people we've been studying, believe it or not, for eight years. Wow. Um, me, me, 11 years. I'm one of the 109. Uh, and just from the first little over three years, we had uh, it was 49 major health discoveries by doing these deep profiles. Is that right? Yeah, so we caught somebody with early lymphoma, um, two people with what are called pre-cancers, meaning they're not cancerous yet, but they can convert to aggressive cancers. And by seeing this, you actually monitor them more closely. I have my own ideas what they should do, but mind you, I should point out I'm not an MD. But um, (laughs) having said, that's probably why I uh, look at this from very different eyes than others. But we caught two people with serious heart issues. Uh, all you know, several people with diabetes didn't know. It. A lot of people with pre-diabetes. Most people with pre-diabetes don't know it, and seventy percent of them will become diabetic. So right. we think it's really important to find all these things so you can, again, make adjustments. And while you're still healthy, before you're symptomatic, and actually, you know, start taking control of your health. That's really the the mantra we do. And it seems to be working. So we have spun some of this off as companies. So I think academics are great at, you know, discovering things, setting up proof of principles, but this is where companies can kick in and actually scale this and do it uh, at a way that academics can't. So so we spun companies off the one that does a deep dive on data. Uh, It's called QBio and they- um, Spell that for us. Yeah, (laughs) QBio, B-I-O. Okay. So what they'll do is they'll do uh, what we do, these deep molecular measurements and a whole body MRI. It's not cheap. It's $3,500. And they'll do it longitudinally. Uh, and they'll follow, again, your health at a level nobody does. And right off the bat, same as our research study, they found some pretty important things. They caught somebody with early pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, two people with heart issues. It's an older group, I should point out, for both our study and what QBio generally studies. So it's 53.4 is the, the median age when people join. It's a broad group. But mind you, again, these have been pretty important things. Sometimes it's a genome sequence that revealed something important. Like we saw a mutation in a gene that said this person might have a heart defect. And sure enough, they did. Interesting. Actually, now they're on drugs. They caught again before he had any issues, but uh, he did something called a stress echo follow-up. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, um, it said, well, he's got a problem. He should be on medication, which he is. Mm-hmm. And another person who had a mutation said they're at high risk for cancer. They did a whole body MRI follow-up. 
And sure enough, they actually had early thyroid cancer and that was removed and they kept most of their thyroid. So, so it's a sort of preventative medicine, if you will, using big data to try and get a picture of you that you're not getting now and see if anything's up that you might want to take corrective action on. That's, that's the general idea. It's so interesting. I, I know people are looking up QBio right now. All right. You have a reputation for wearing four smartwatches simultaneously. We're just curious, which four, <laughs> which, which four do you like? What, what do you well, put? It's, and then- it's, it's Apple, Fitbit, Garmin, and uh, here I'm totally biased again, Sensomics. <laughs> uh, Sensomics is a, is a company I started as well with the idea, again, of a lot of these watches. They're, they're great watches, but many of them, you know, they're, they'll read your email and this kind of stuff. <laughs> Sensomics is building a watch that's a little more focused just on for, health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And we think that's powerful. It's higher resolution. So we think we can catch things. Again, we'll talk about that a little later, I'm sure. Yeah. But, but we think it's going to be pretty powerful for this. Yeah. So uh, anyway, those are the four watches. I usually wear an Aura Ring too. Okay. Uh, that one I uh, lost by accident. Oh, no. <laughs> and I got to get a new one back. And I have other kinds of devices too. Uh, I measure environmental exposures with this thing. <laughs> Um, and all these sorts of things. So, so anyway, yeah, I'm uh, probably the ultimate of quantified. <laughs> <laughs> so how similar is the data? It, it seems like, and we can, we'll talk about HRV and sleep data and, and, you know, resting heart rate and all that kind of stuff, but are you seeing similar results with each of the four or is it like this one's yeah. really good at this and this one's really bad at this, but really good at this one. Right. So they're all good at heart rate and heart rate variability, I think. And then when it comes to other things, they simply either don't measure them. Some devices will measure skin temperature. Some will measure blood oxygen. None of them are good at absolute levels of blood oxygen, but they're good at picking up shifts. And again, some devices do that. Others don't. So, and, and this shifts, by the way, is important. See, we're all different. We all have different baseline measurements. I'm sure you, you and the listeners know this already. Yeah. We all have different heart rates, blood oxygen, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's not the key part when you're looking at somebody's health. The key part is if, if you start getting ill, you'll see a shift. Change. And that's the key. And, and people don't do that now. That's another big part of it. Is it's not just big data. It's the fact that we collect it what's called longitudinally over time. And even in today's health world, when you go to a doctor's office, they measure you and they only look at those measures. In that moment. If you're enraged or not, they never look back. And for all you know, you're trending in a bad direction with one Mm -hmm. of your markers and they would never know because you're in range, everything's fine, but you can be trending in a bad direction and to be just, you know, below out of range. And and that would be useful to know. So, so that's another big part. We, we try and follow people's personal trajectories so we can see if something's going off. And that turns out to be pretty powerful for following someone's health. And it seems I remember the NBA was using the aura to kind yeah. of get mm-hmm. some early possible, not not definitive, but possible signs that somebody had COVID or had been uh, in that circle. Yeah, I haven't seen the results of that study yet. Uh, we actually have one rolling out now with Pac-12. You may have been yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, so we partnered with Fitbit to be able to do a similar thing with Pac-12. See, these folks are getting tested quite frequently. So it's really nice if you can put a device on and see if we can pick this up so if you like, I can tell you a little more about our study in that area. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So we're we're very keen on wearables. And we got involved in this about eight years ago before the Apple Watch existed. And um, Fitbit was out there. And there was another watch that we used called Basis. They don't exist anymore. 
And people are using them as fitness trackers and they right. put them on, they know their, you know, they know their steps and their habits and three months later, throw in a drawer because once you figure out your habits, you get it. And we realize these are pretty powerful physiological monitors, right? They're measuring all kinds of important things. And uh, even the cheapest devices make a few hundred thousand measurements per day, but some will make 2.5 million measurements on you every day. Wow. So they're just measuring you constantly, 24-7, 365 days a year if you get them charged. So what we realize, they're pretty powerful. So, you know, we put them on air, folks. These 109 people are all wearing, you know, Fitbits or whatever. And, right. and basically watch that now Fitbits and, or Apple Watch. We let them wear whatever they like. And we... we um, uh, I'm one of those. And, the, and so what we discovered is fun things. Some, most people don't know this, but your blood oxygen drops on airplanes. Pilots know it. Most uh, flight attendants don't know it. So, And it turns out it makes you tired. That part's not mm. documented in the literature, but it's obvious we did some studies to show that. That when you're, yeah. So the bottom line is you fall asleep on airplanes, not because you've been working too hard or partying too much, what have you. It's because they reduce the pressure in the cabin and your blood oxygen drops, you get tired. <laughs> so in hindsight, pretty obvious. What we discovered is I was, I was wearing these is that the, uh, I actually figured out my Lyme disease of all things from this. Wow. And it was from a, a spinoff of what I was just telling you. I was flying to Norway through Frankfurt, Germany. Backstory was two weeks earlier, I'd been putting up fences in rural Massachusetts for one day with my brother. 55% of ticks are Lyme infested. And then I'm flying to Norway two weeks later. And you can tell I measure me all the time. And what yeah, I yeah. My blood oxygen was abnormally low on this last flight, and my heart rate was running high. And I said, something's up. And, uh, you know, I measured it. I knew it was way low. And it didn't go back to normal when I landed. Then later, next day, I got a low-grade fever. It was kind of going off and on. So I went to a doctor finally in Norway. I warned him it might be Lyme because of the two weeks. You know, he he drew blood, said, yep, your immune cells are up. you got a bacterial infection. You need penicillin. And I said, no, I need doxycycline. <laughs> what you your Lyme. <laughs> Little tension going on there for a few moments, but he he did give in because uh, you know I was persistent, I guess. And taking two weeks, it cleared it right up right away. But you take it for two weeks. When I got back, I tested I was lying positive, and I'd given blood three days before I left uh, because I do this all the time. Right, and, right. And I was negative, so I see it converted during that time. Very well controlled experiment. Interesting. That showed we could pick up Lyme disease. So we went back and looked at all the data I had. I had two years of data on this watch. And it turns out there were every single time I was ill, there were four periods. One was Lyme, two were viral infections, and the fourth time I was asymptomatic, but I know I was ill because there's a marker, it's called C-reactive protein, that was high. Mm -hmm. You get ill, that goes way up. And it was just as high as the other time. All four of those times, I had a high heart rate, and it turns out I had a high skin temperature too. So in retrospect, we could see this. So we wrote an algorithm, we call it change of heart, it works well in heart rate, not so well in skin temperature. That picks up when your resting heart rate jumps up over your personal baseline. And so you build a baseline measurement on you and you look for this jump up in signal. And it works great. We showed retrospectively it would pick up all my viral infections and that of other people wow. in their cohort. So, so as you might imagine, yeah, we we're pretty pleased with that. We published it about four years ago. And then as you might imagine, when the pandemic hit, we just ramped us up big time. We had been improving the algorithms and we were building an infrastructure. This is a big deal. We're trying to build an infrastructure that can follow everyone in the world, believe it or not. Right now, we know we can handle tens of millions of people. But what it does is it's meant to follow you in real time, your health in real time. 
So, and the way it works is pretty similar to what I said. It'll, it'll follow your baseline. Well, first of all, with COVID, we had the first show at work. So we quickly enrolled. We launched a study as soon as the pandemic came, got, you know, 5,000 people to join, sure. uh, 32 Fitbit users wearing a watch when they had COVID. And sure enough, 26 to 32, we could pick up this elevated resting heart rate signature. So we said, all right, it works. So then we wrote uh, an alarming system which we first showed retrospectively works. It can tell when you're getting ill, turns out a median of four days before symptoms. So COVID has a long asymptomatic period, pre-symptomatic period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not specific for COVID. If you other viral infections will trigger this alarm too. And that's about two days before illness. So similar to our previous study. And that makes sense. Again, COVID has a longer pre-symptomatic period. So we can... Again, see this thing go up, and it works about 70% of the time. So we've now launched a study. Love all the listeners that sign up. <laughs> it's innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. Innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables. Please sign up. We have this alerting system now that we set up. We just launched it in December, and it works. Basically, we, we tuned it in a way that, Alarms will go off roughly every two months, and they're not COVID alarms uh, most of the time, of course. It does go up when you do get COVID. Again, we can pick it up 70, turns out 73% of the time. Wow. Uh, again, before symptoms, uh, which is good, it'll go up sometimes after. <laughs> Those we call misses. <laughs> but anyway, it works most of the time. I know if we can get higher resolution data, we'll do better in other data types like heart rate variability we talked about. Want to bring in these other things. And I think I, I'm pretty confident we could get this much, much higher. I hope to 95% or better. So we think this is going to be powerful, at least uh, hopefully for the pandemic as well as the future in general. Because if you think about the way people get tested now is usually after they get ill. Right. Or or maybe Always. Weekly, weekly screening at best in the case yeah. of this pandemic, unless you're an NBA player. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. But for the rest of us, it's once a week or not at all until we're ill. But these things are following you 24-7. And they're just so much more powerful. They're cheap, right? Relatively speaking, right. $100 right. watch will do the thing. Uh, we'll do the alarming and it, it works at some level. And I know, like I say, I know we can improve it. That's why we want people to sign up for a study so we can perfect the algorithm. The alarm goes off, you send us an alert. Again, it's not just COVID triggers it, other respiratory viruses. Drinking way too much can do it, not just okay. for dinner, but if you drink, if you tie one on, you'll be hung over the next day, your heart rate will be off. Okay. Uh, and to be honest, uh, for, the, for this group, you have to watch a little bit too, because people who... Uh, like if you run a marathon, it usually takes several days to recover. Mm -hmm. That'll trigger the alarm too. <laughs> Interesting. So overexertion will will trigger it. You know, not normal exert, exertion, but we'll we track your normal patterns. So, so the way it works is we're following your normal baseline pattern, and you see this elevated signal that's just way off from your baseline, and that's what sets the alarm off. Okay, so let's talk accuracy on some of these things. We had an HRV expert with our on the show probably a year ago. We talked a lot about that. It seems like the HRV, at least with the device that I use, which I won't name, you know which one I'm talking about, it's not consistent. The HRV doesn't seem to follow any sort of pattern. Is that just me not realizing maybe some of the other things that could be affecting it? Or yeah, are you finding the HRV is. with the basics do tend to be pretty accurate? I think they're pretty accurate these okay. days. 
Like, Good. Yeah. And if they're off, they're off systematically. So I think if you were shifting, it's probably something else. Is something going else. On. Okay. And, uh, and there's there certain device- patterns, by the way, to these things, you know, just, I'm sure you know that already, but yeah. you know, just see so you know, how people exercise and stuff. Even in California, people have seasonal patterns. We could actually show there are two biological seasons in California based on how people's molecules fluctuate. It's kind of cool. <laughs> now, are there certain device if, if people are out there going, you know what? I had a device, I haven't really used it much. Is there is there one that you would lean towards for the fitness, another one that you would lean more towards the health? One that, you know, are there things that you say, this one's great for this piece, this one's great for that piece? Any guidance there from your expertise there? Well, I probably shouldn't be going around promoting certain devices beyond my, beyond my own, but let's just say we, we do look for high resolution. So I would look at something called Hertz that tells you how often you're, you're sampling. And I would look for all those things, heart rate, heart rate variability at high Hertz. And then if you can, skin temperature is good for health. I would definitely pull in skin temperature. And we think the, the blood oxygen, again, it's the delta that counts because the absolute values won't be that great. That's a good one to have too. Some of the devices are now coming out with blood pressure. We're evaluating them. You know, again, I don't think they're super accurate, but I think, I do think they are capturing differences. The the trends. At the end, that's going to be again, once, even if it's off, even that time I told you about Lyme disease, I was using two pulse oxes, believe it or not. One was accurate. One wasn't accurate. Even the inaccurate one, I could see it that. Change. Yeah, because okay. the shift that counts. So that's probably the right measurement to use. Okay. This will be relevant to your audience too. You know, people, um, there's another pet peeve of mine about the, the health system. People, all doctors right now will absolutely tell you, don't get a whole body MRI. Uh, and they'll say, if you do a whole body MRI, you're going to see lesions. Guaranteed, you'll see them in your prostate, sure. you'll see them in their ovaries. We all have them. Sure. And that's not the issue. The issue is, are any of them growing? <laughs> okay. And you'll never know that unless you get- You got to get the baseline. Eyes and, see, and most of them won't be growing. Hopefully yeah. none of them will ever be growing. But given that everyone's going to get cancer in their lifetime, at least 60% of people will, it's not a bad idea to be following this stuff. Right. So this is the power of longitudinal profiling, we think, that you really want to follow people while they're healthy so you can see these shifts. If I went and measured you after you got cancer right now, I'd have no way of knowing which of your lesions are growing there. And so I think that's a key part is this longitudinal aspect. And again, with the wearables, of course, it's trivial to collect that stuff. And so we build algorithms. We'll have a paper coming out pretty soon where we can show this goes beyond infectious disease for the wearables. We can actually see, if you think about it, it makes sense. We can tell your hemoglobin, because it's measuring that, right? Some of these devices, uh, when they do their measurements, they're actually looking at your hemoglobin level. It's actually your oxygenated hemoglobin. It uses something called spectroscopy. Anyway, it'll follow that, uh, and it can give you a sense of how much blood you have, whether you're getting anemic, how hydrated Mm -hmm. you are. All these things can get picked up with a smartwatch, and and there's actually some measurements that don't have a clinical correlate, like something called galvanic stress response. So it's measuring conductance on your skin. Some of the devices do that, and that actually, you, you don't get that measured in a clinic, but it turns out that's a measure of skin dryness or stress. Actually, so mm. if you're more stressed, you sweat more. Right. Up. If you're getting diabetic, your skin gets drier and it goes down. So That's there's cool. actually signal from all, all these things that actually have some, you know, some signal about your health 
and you put them all together to get a better idea of what's going on. They're not they're not clinical measurements, but they're kind of like giving you clues. Right. Something's up, just like I was saying about the infectious disease. If you see your heart rate jump up, you know something's up. Right. <laughs> they're real, they're real signals. All right. So what's the next step after wearables? Do you do you see smart tattoos or implants or, or those kinds of things? And besides public opinion, what holds us back from seeing some of those in place now? Or are they there and we're just not hearing about it? Yeah, uh, I'd say smart clothes are just coming out where people mm-hmm. have sensors on clothes. But there's no question that the rings and the watches are the most convenient. Uh, they're, they're pretty easy to do. I do think the next wave will probably be implantables and and more types of sensors. So continuous glucose monitors are a big wave. I don't know if you know much about these, but I don't. Uh, yeah, so they'll measure your glucose twenty four seven. So why is this a big deal? Uh, by the way, the devices last typically ten days, ten to fourteen days, and that's plenty to see what's going on. So so why is this a big deal? Well. Uh, 9% of the U.S. population is diabetic, and 33% is pre-diabetic. And 90% of those pre-diabetics don't know it. I guarantee a lot of listeners right now right. have no idea they're pre-diabetic. They're spiking right after they eat a meal. And what's what's powerful about these is they pick that up, but they also tell you what spikes you. It turns out we're all different, and you may know this already from the right. food, how we handle our food. Right. And it turns out that different foods spike people differently. So some people spike the bread, some the pasta, some the berries. It just depends on your micro. Your microbiome is part of this, but actually it's other things as well. We just react differently to different foods. And so you have no idea what's spiking you now. And, and some of this is obvious in hindsight. So we, we, we're we very big on this because uh, people don't realize we're in an endemic. I mean, you may have noticed the U.S. population is getting larger, yes. but not, not by growing taller, yeah, absolutely <laughs> getting larger right. in the wrong direction uh, by a lot. And in fact, if the numbers are staggering, sometimes people eat 40,000 times more sugar than they did 60 years ago. Wow. It's just incredible. Wow. So, uh, so people are eating badly. And the net result is we're getting overweight and diabetes is, is probably going to be worse than actually COVID when you get right down to yes. it. Yeah. And the numbers, again, they're just going up and up and up. Yeah. So uh, people, this is one way to control this, put these monitors on. They're over the counter in Europe, but in the U.S. you need a physician to order them. And they're very, very powerful. So again, totally biased, but we found in the company once we learned about this stuff, what we showed was a lot of normal people and uh, first of all, spikers, meaning they spike their glucose after eating a meal. And again, it depends on the person and what meal they eat. And that's what these devices teach you. You'll learn that, you know, whether you're a pasta spiker, some people will spike the brown bread and some people will spike to white bread. And really, it's that specific. It can be. Yeah. Interesting. What's, what's interesting is we found 80% of people spike the cornflakes and milk. That stuff's like poison. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> cornflakes and milk. Yeah. That's the standard 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. But it's worse than smoking would be my guess. But anyway, uh, it's, um, it's not good. So anyway, we we did form a company called January that actually, again, uh, once we figure out what was going on in the research lab, we spun it off. And uh, that's what they do. They teach people how to eat better just by wearing these monitors. You, you'll see it's really eye opening. Uh-huh. And all, all this stuff is kind of obvious in hindsight, like pulled pork. I had no idea I <laughs> eat pulled pork. Yeah, who would think? My glucose up 350, you know, and supposed to be like 90. And uh, I'm showing this to me. He said, well, of course, Mike, everybody knows that sugar. And I said, oh, I had no idea. 
<laughs> so, so you learn learn a lot. By the way, I'm type two diabetic. I don't know if you know that. Interesting. It was figured out from my genome. Actually, I first sequenced my genome, said I was high risk, and then after a nasty viral infection, my glucose spiked out of control and and uh, never came back. I mean, I had to really uh, adjust my whole everything I ate, my exercise regime, all those stuff. And I first got under control, but it came back later. We we think of uh, we think I'm genetically predisposed, and then the viral infection triggered it. And, and now we're seeing with the COVID nineteen pandemic. It's happening again. A lot of people are becoming diabetic after COVID. It's one of these lasting effects. Not all. It's a subset of people. It might be people like me who are genetically predisposed. Not clear. So anyway, that's a new thing that people are learning. And we're kind of the first to show this in a, well, I guess a funny kind of way because we showed it on me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I had what's called a respiratory syncytial virus. It's a very different kind of virus. It's a common virus, not common in adults. Anyway, I got that, got pretty sick, and then became type 2 diabetic. So I actually have to watch, yeah. So And I can see now exactly what foods spike me, which ones don't. So so I've learned to adjust. And just simple things, and again, the listeners like this, but you can do very, very simple things, uh, like if you walk after you eat you actually suppress your glucose spike. It has a big effect. Uh, and just little simple things that, that you know, you can learn very, very quickly to better manage your glucose. And that's the goal. Let's keep people healthy with pretty simple solutions. Uh, let's show them what's going on and try and keep people healthy. That's, again, another way we want to transform medicine. Right. All right, your January 2020 study, Aging Markers and Agiotypes. That's going to be a big interest to listeners. Walk us through the findings. I I didn't completely follow it, but give us the basics without taking us in too deep. And what's the application to the real world with this stuff? Yeah, so what we discovered is that as we're following people, again, there's 109 people, what we discovered is that most molecules don't change much over time. We're pretty robust and we're pretty different, by the way. It's pretty cool. Meaning um, that if I do your molecular signature, look at your metabolites or your proteins or whatever in your blood, you'll have a very personal pattern. And if you get sick or do exercise, what have you, you still look more like you than me. And this is why it's so important to get your own personal baseline measurements. Because I can't tell. Right. You can't tell if you're getting sick. You by can't take three different you. test results and say that's the problem. Yeah, and, and, and a sick, you compare a sick you with everybody else, it, right. it doesn't work because we're all too different from each other. So, so step number one is we have a fairly stable baseline in all these molecules. But what we discovered is that as we follow people over time, some of them are changing ever so slightly, but they are shifting at about 600 molecules. And the cool thing is they're not the same in all people. So some people are aging one way and other people are aging another way. So for example, I'm a pretty typical ager. My, it's called my coagulation pathway, my blood coagulation and metabolic markers and things go up. That's known to happen in general over time. But I look at the next guy over and it turns out he's a cardio ager. So his cardio hypertrophic cardiomyopathy pathways, that's his top pathway shifting. So he's a heart ager. And it turns out we later learned he's stage two hypertensive, kind of mm-hmm. all fits. We, we basically took all these people and said, well, how many patterns are there? And the answer, we saw four major patterns. Now I know there's more than four, but they're basically kidney, liver, metabolic, and immunoager. So your immune system. 
We know they're more than that. We just were underpowered the same. We're like, there's only one of the cardioagers. So that's why we don't have a separate category for that one just yet. But we will as we add on more people. So anyway, we can see and some people are aging in all four categories or kidney, liver, you know, metabolic immunoagers. I'm, I'm actually in three of the four, metabolic kidney, liver, but not so much immune, which is good. And then other people just be kidney, others are kidney plus liver, what have you. So we can see exactly how people are aging. So why is this a big deal? Well, I would say for two reasons. One is everybody's bombarding you with information these days about longevity pills, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. You have no way of knowing if they're working, right? If you can't measure it, how do you know if they work? Now, this group might figure it out a little bit by running time or something like that. And so that's one way to try and suss, see if your running time maybe isn't decreasing as much as you get older. But actually, this, these molecular markers could help tell us how we're aging, which is kind of cool. So if you do take Elysium or one of these things, you can see if it works. I think more importantly, if we see how you're aging, we can try and take corrective action. So I view it like a car. Your car gets older with time and everything gets older. Sure. Some parts are going to wear out first. Could be the engine, could be the transmission, could be the brakes. Perfect analogy. And you want to know what's going on there. So uh, what you do, like the cardio ager, well, what he should do is first of all, maybe he should be on drugs if something's not quite right. Or certainly exercise more. The kidney ager probably wants to drink more water and do things related to that. A liver ager may want to not, you know, go on binge drinking as much, perhaps. Or, you know, certainly diet will affect both the metabolic kidney and liver. So you want to adjust your diet. So we think all the information is actionable. Again, and you can measure if it's really working because we have markers to see how it's going. So that we think will be very, very powerful. We'll not only follow people's health. We'll follow how it's changing with time. And if something, again, seems shifting off in a bad direction, one could take corrective action. Okay. So now the practical side, people are hearing this and they're like, this is so interesting. What do I do? Like, who, how do I get this? How do I get my doctor to order this test or whatever? What is it it just in research? Yeah. We haven't commercialized that. Oh, come on, doc. Yeah, I know. You told me about about (laughs) starting all these companies. Wouldn't you know it? I didn't start one here, Uh, partly because I'm just a pretty busy guy, partly because um, it's a harder business route to hit. But there is a lot of interest in longevity. People are now putting billions of dollars in this area. So I I do think there is value, but you need the right business plan. Maybe we still will do something. But but yeah, so you can still get a, a very, very crude version of this. Um, and I'll try and find the website for your listeners. But um, there is something, a, a group came out with just nine markers. It's not as good as what we were doing, but it'll give some sense of how you're, you're aging. Uh, and, and that would be one way to start, I suppose. And But okay. I think people will get more and more involved with this. There are companies that are following changes in your DNA. It's called methylation that have formed out there, but it's not in a fashion that I, as far as I can tell is actionable. So, so I think, yeah, we, we need to, well, basically get the setup in a way that could become accessible to everyone. I'm pretty yeah. sure all the other stuff we're setting up, by the way, with the wearables, I, I didn't get into this so much, but we can now, so this, this infectious disease learning, we built the system that again, can measure millions of people in real time, see if, you know, you get a shift in heart rate because of this cloud computing, uh, looks for a shift in heart rate and pings you back on learning. Do that again for millions of people. And then a key aspect is to do it all through your smartphone. So you download an app, 
So we think this is the future. This is getting back to a question you asked mm-hmm, earlier. Mm-hmm. We can pull in all our health information uh, onto this app, basically. But anyway, it'll pull in all your wearable information, all your clinical information, your microbiome, even all that information and display it. And we think this is going to be the most important tool for your health in the future. Just like your car has a dashboard that shows you the health of your car, you know, gas, engine lights, what have you. This is what's going to be the health of the future for people. And it's not going to replace doctors. It's just going to tip you off. Uh, and show, you know, look, this thing's not right. Maybe better go get a checkup. Just like if you put a thermometer in your mouth and it's elevated, uh, it'll tell you that. And by the way, here's another one I'll tell you. Which you're wait, wait, wait. I want to get one thing here. You mentioned so, there's a company that does the nine factors or a group of companies. Is that something people would go through their doctor to get? Or is that something they just need to Google, reach out, do their research, make sure it's legit? Yeah, what they do, uh, um, what I've seen is that you there's a website on it. I don't remember what it is now because it's not our work. But yeah, you can take your clinical markers. There's something called hemoglobin A1C uh, and liver markers. I think creatin's in there. There's about, it's about eight or nine markers that are often measured when you go get your checkup. So when you go get a checkup, there's a standard set of things they measure. You can take those values along with your weight and other habits, and you plug it into this system. And after the podcast, I can send you the Yeah, link. that'd be great. We'll stick it Maybe, in the description. Yeah, put it in there somewhere. Again, it's not our work. And it, it's kind of cool, though, because it says, and I have no idea how accurate it is because it's a limited number of markers. Sure. But I think this, uh, if nothing else, will represent the future, meaning we'll, we'll as we collect more data around people, we will get better at doing this stuff. And then get better at seeing how you age, for example. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So I, I think it'll be very powerful. But I, I thought of another example of how medicine's broken along <laughs> the same line, which is your heart rate, right? You go to a doctor now to get your heart rate measured. And speaking for myself, my heart rate can vary by as much as 40 beats per minute, depending what was going on, like whether I drove there or biked there or what's going sure. on. And even if I said around 15 minutes, it doesn't come back. But if you pull your heart rate off of a smartwatch first thing in the morning, it's pretty consistent. And the only time it shifts is you're either stressed or you're ill. It's, it's much more accurate than what you'll measure in a physician's office. And the reason I brought this up is a lot of physicians would say, oh, those wearables are not very accurate, blah, blah, blah. Well, they're, more, they're better at measuring your heart rate health <laughs> than what you measure in a physician's office. Oh, absolutely. You've got to change this mindset. Well, blood pressure is a great example. You walk in, they've got to check it. So they have you, you know, you you literally just walked in there. Someone walks in, some people get nervous in that setting. They pop the thing on you. Sometimes it's over your shirt and and then they throw it in the chart and you're like, that's not my, like, what what is this? Why are we even measuring this number? Yeah. Yeah. They call that the white coat syndrome. The idea when you go to the physician. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, I've been hundreds of times as part of my measurement, so I, I don't get you know that it. anymore, but I still vary by those 40 beats per minute, just depending what's going right. on. Right. Interesting. <laughs> so, so I think the measurements we get at home. So I think I see a world in the future where you're, you're just pulling the state all the time. And then there'll be a lot of home sampling, like doing pricks, blood pricks at home and getting measurements that way, sort of the Theranos system that, but it works <laughs> right, right. Kind, kind of idea. I, I just see that's where the future w- will head. And if you think about, you know, uh, nobody in my family, even before the pandemic was going to stores much anymore, right. They would just order it all from Amazon. 
And that's how healthcare will become. Why, why would you go to a doctor to get sick for most things? Now, if you need an MRI, that's different sure. uh, for yeah. big equipment. But for routine stuff, you'll do a lot of it um, just remotely. Shift gears here just a little bit. Another one of your 2020 studies, I found this fascinating, potential blood tests to determine fitness levels. Can you talk that through a little bit? Because a lot of our listeners are like, wait, what? You can tell my fitness level from a blood test? Tell me more. Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty wild. So we did a study to look at the effects of exercise, acute bout of exercise. So people ran to their VO2 max. Okay. The listeners probably all know that VO2 max is a sign of health, and it's actually the number one predictor of longevity. VO2 max is. It is, yeah, better than any other value out there. All right, I'm going to keep doing intervals then. (laughs) Yeah, so we had people, you know, run to their VO2 max. You know, it's it's eight to twelve minutes, depending how how you're got set up. And and um, so we did this. We had 36 people do this, and I thought, well, you know, how much is going to change in an eight minute run? And the answer is a lot. (laughs) Right, half your molecules do shift. Yeah. Yeah, so we could then correlate which molecule shifted. We pulled out 12, basically, well, age plus 11 others actually correlate, very set up a pretty good signature for your VO2 max. So in the future, in principle, you could just do a blood test and know what your VO2 max is without doing that. That wouldn't hurt as much. Eight-minute run. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, for me, it's the whole inconvenience of taking the clothes off, putting on gym clothes. Totally. Uh, I did this once it's in New York. The mask, yeah, which is terrible. Yeah, I did in New York and I forgot my shoes. So there I'm running. Oh. I'm running in my, you know, dress shoes. <laughs> I'm sure that went well. <laughs> and, yeah, that value came out a bit lower, I can safely say. <laughs> yes. But by, by several uh standard deviations, I have a feeling. Um man, this is so interesting. The Let's talk about the precision health just a little bit because I interrupted you on some of that stuff and I think maybe you had something else you wanted to talk about. How how do you see it being utilized in the future? And ba- and you've talked a little bit about that, but what are the barriers to having that as part of our future personal personalized health journey? Because it's not happening now. Everything's yeah. so generic. Right now, everything's sick care. We don't we don't run health right. in this country. Right, right. And why is that? It's because nobody pays to keep you healthy. The whole incentive model yep. is broken. Totally. Uh, and, you know, as the head of the hospital here uh, told me, it's not here now, somebody else's, but he basically said, Mike, nobody pays me unless they walk in the door, and they're not going to walk in the door unless they're ill. And so we don't have a system set up to do that. So we have to change that. So right now, everything I told you for our companies, people are going to have to pay out of pocket. The QBio, the January AI. <laughs> Sensomics, you have to pay for that. And I think there are other systems that could be set up to correct that. One is, wouldn't it be great if your provider or your insurer did it because, uh, and they could incentivize you to do this? Like, yep. uh, there's there's a lot of talk about this, about giving you a you know break in your insurance if you walk 10,000 steps a yep. day. You have to set up systems so people don't cheat this. Oh, I'll just put it on my cat or what have you. The f- ceiling fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, but that's where you put a GPS on and you make sure it, <laughs> they have to get four. It's not away. moving. <laughs> Besides, they're probably moving pretty fast if it's on a ceiling, man. They can't keep it up for an hour. <laughs> exactly. So I think there's a, you know, you're, it's, yeah, you have to come up with ways to watch out for the cheating, but you get the idea. I think if, uh, I think there's two things that motivate people one is money and the other is family. 
Yep. So I think if people can get breaks, uh, you know, if they do live healthier lives or, or, you know, I hate to say it, but penalize them if they don't, uh, if they don't get up off the couch. And the other is your, your family, your family's pretty good about motivating you. You know, I always think about the time when my mother-in-law got ill with cancer, the number one person who made sure she took her pills was her daughter, my wife, <laughs> you know, you take that your pills today. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, because she's feeling run down and tired and, but the one who was incentivized was the family. So I think we can work on those angles and other angles I think are creative. How about some of these big employers? Like, isn't it in Google's best interest and Facebook to keep their employees healthy and happy because right. then they're performing better. So if you have these wellness plans that, uh, and the stuff we said is, is some of it's not that cheap at all. Like the CGM, the continuous glucose monitoring I mentioned, you know, the, that company's running for 288 uh, for the first program. And uh, that's not so expensive. And now QBI is more expensive, 3,500, but I know the price will drop as we get better. Get more numbers. But yeah, yeah that's heck. But I would argue even 3,500 to catch someone with a, a heart problem early sure. is huge. If they yeah. have a stroke, and go long-term disability, that's super expensive. Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, I would argue when you look at how the U.S. spends money, we spent a ton of money on that last year of life. That's why we spend twice as much money yeah. as anyone else. Yeah, why the graphs do we are... that money early? Yep. When people are healthy, let's keep them healthy. Yep. I think those probably your listeners are exactly the right kind of people. They probably are concerned. They're all nodding their heads going, that's what we need. That's what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. And they're wearing their watch. It was great. Now we just need to put health apps along with right. it. And right. Probably a lot of them have some of the stuff already. And we'll get it better and better uh, as we learn more about these things. And then we'll have more and more sensors. It's I, I think we're heading in the right direction. We just got to get the financial models set up. Right. So it's good for everybody. So great stuff. A lot of stuff. Bring us back any insights that you want to share that I haven't teed up with the right question or anything that you, you know, you want to mention this app, check this app out, or this is something you definitely want to do or, oh yeah, Brad, I, I want to make sure I mentioned this. Any of those things kind of tie a ribbon on this thing? Yeah. Well, no, I, I think this is just the future. I think we're going to be collecting a lot more data at, from people at home or for, you know, these sensors and things. And I just see this as the future data, get ready for it. The number one concern people raise is privacy. You mm -hmm. know, oh gosh, who's going to own my data? Right. And aren't they going to, you know, take advantage of it, what have you? And my reaction to that is, you know, I have two reactions. One is privacy, get over it. Uh, because, you know, your credit card company. They already <laughs> have it. Yep. And there's a lot of personal stuff on there, yet yep. we don't have any problem with that. And the reason we don't is it's incredibly convenient to use right. credit cards. Right. And so I would argue it's, it should be incredibly convenient to get your health monitored and catch disease early. So we should have that same mindset. And then the other argument I would say, if if, if there are going to be abuses around that, well, that's what you know laws are for. for. I mean, yeah. So that we can make sure they're not, it's not, privacy is not abused. And it's used in a way that's good. Uh, this information is good, not used against us. So, so anyway, that that's a concern sometimes people raise. For me, I don't think it's real. Believe it or not, all my data I have two petabytes of data for the geeks out there. <laughs> it's all public. You can download it. You can play with it. Learn. So from if they it. really want to get to know you. Same with the uh, same with the study of participants. Most of them have agreed to make their data, and and people are now analyzing it, trying to get new insights about human health. So we think it's it's one of these systems where not only 
you know, trying to test the, test all this, use it, learn from it, and try and ma- manage people's health. But we're trying to make it a research study so other groups can learn from it too. And I, I think the future, we're all going to have these learning personalized trajectories, and we're going to catch disease long before it's symptomatic. Mm-hmm. To me, that's, that's Mike Snyder's world. I think we're all going to be getting our genome sequence, well, not us, but our kids, future kids, <laughs> before right. they're born. They'll be get, using their genetic information Again, uh, get it early and, uh, yeah, better manage people's health, assess risk, look at people's trajectories. And I just see this is the way the field's going. I'm sure your listeners, because they're all health conscious, probably half of them are doing it already themselves. Now all we need is AI and algorithms to do it even better. Right, right. This is so interesting. I think you've opened – you've probably – cause us to ask more questions than we got answers, but that's what we're here for. So (laughs) love it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brad. It's been fun. I have a feeling you will never look at your watch the same, will you? Thanks again for the fascinating insights from Dr. Michael Snyder, the man with four watches. Thanks to you for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. Next week's guest is Dr. Colleen Carney discussing one of your favorite topics consistently, one of your favorites, sleep. However, her approach to sleep habits and how to enhance those, it's very different from everything else you've been hearing out there, which is exactly why we asked her to join us on the show. You won't sleep through this one. I can promise you. If you need anything additional on the coaching front, whether considering pursuing your MBHWC approved certification, attending this fall's Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium, or curious about how to integrate personalized board certified health and wellness coaching into your organization, feel free to reach out to us anytime. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or tap into more resources on the new website, CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now it's time to be a catalyst on this journey of life. The chance to make a positive difference in the world while simultaneously improving our own lives, which is the essence of being a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week. And I'll speak with you soon in the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.